What if I told you that the way that we consume Scripture has a dramatic impact on how we both understand and interpret Scripture? Now, maybe that seems really obvious. Maybe that seems like common sense. Because, of course, we want to make sure that as we approach Scripture, as we take Scripture in, that we want Scripture to speak to us. We don't want to speak into Scripture. We want to see what God is revealing to us, the way that he revealed it to us. And so, of course, it's important to consume the Bible in the right way so that we can understand it in the right way. And obviously, how we take the Bible in is going to affect how we see it. But the reality is that's a really difficult undertaking. The Bible is a really big book. And mine is mine's pretty thin by comparison, relatively speaking. It's a pretty thin Bible, still a lot of pages. And these are very small words crammed into these pages, and they're very thin pages. And so there's a lot of content inside of the Bible. It's a very big book. But then we see that it's divided into two sections. So you have the Old Testament and you have the New. And that creates some kind of a bias in our mind because we think the Old Testament is old. And so it can feel really foreign and difficult to interact with it. And it's stories from people who lived a long, long time ago. But then the Bible is broken up into different books, 66 of them to be exact. And these books are written by different authors, over 40 different authors. They're written over this big course of time, over 1,600 years it took to compile the Bible as a whole. And they're also written in different genres. And so we read Joshua differently than we would read the Psalms, differently than we would read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, differently than we would read the Epistles or Revelation. And then people have gone in, and this is helpful because it's made it easier to find things in the Bible, but now our books are broken up into sections with section headings and chapters and verses, and everything is broken down and segmented. And now, living in the 21st century, we have a variety of ways in which we can actually consume Scripture and take it in. We don't just have to have a paper Bible anymore and sit down and read it. We can listen to it. We can have it broadcast to it. We can see people read it all over the world in different languages and different translations. We can see it in all different forms and formats, even down to Twitter, where we can have these micro-pictures of what God's Word says in quotable little chunks. And so how do we make sense of it all? How do we go about not only reading Scripture, but trying to understand what Scripture is teaching us and what it's revealing to us about who God is, how He's saving us, and what it means to be His people? I think because of all of what I just said, it can be very easy for our initial thought and reaction and desire should be to consume Scripture in the easiest way possible, in the most approachable way possible. And so what we do is we go to the Bible and we try to figure out, all right, so what is this saying for me? What can I get to apply it to my life? And what is the quickest way that I consume it? And so we narrow everything down to small memory verses and chunks of Scripture and things that we can put on posters in our classroom and things that we can tweet out and things that are going to be directly meaningful to us. And so we take the Bible and we divide it and we segment it and we consume it in small little chunks and use those chunks to say something very big. But what if I told you that the Bible, with all of its parts and all of its pieces, is designed to tell us one big story? And that one big story is pieced together with common themes and motifs that tie it all together and lead it in one direction. 
And seeing the Bible as this one big narrative, as this one big story, can drastically change how we see the little pieces inside of it and how we interpret those things. So before we move on, I want to give you a really quick case study of something that I saw on social media this week. Now, I've seen this particular verse pop up several times, and if you have ever used this verse in its small context, I, this is not intentionally at you. I didn't see anyone in our church post it, so I'm not calling anyone out in particular. There is no reason for guilt or shame, or if anything has ever gone on where you have used this verse in a small context, but I think it's a really helpful study here. In Psalm chapter 46, verse 5, I see this verse quoted a lot, a lot of times in the New International Version. It says that God is within her, and she will not fail. God will help her at break of day. And in the context that this passage is usually used in the, the big social media world, as we interpret this verse to mean, if someone, in this case particularly, if a woman really trusts in God, if she puts her faith in God, then he is going to dwell within her, and he's going to strengthen her, and nothing can come against her. And so it's this nice girl power verse, which I'm all about girl power. I got two little ones. I love them. I want them to grow up to be strong and independent and fierce in their faith and also change the world. I love that. But there's a problem when it comes to using this verse for that message. If we look at it in its broader context, we find this. Just adding in verse 4 here. It says, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, meaning the city of God, and she shall not be moved. And God will help her when morning dawns. In fact, the New Living Translation says it this way, God dwells in that city, and it cannot be destroyed. From the very break of day, God will protect it. And so in the context, what we find is that this passage of Scripture isn't about an individual woman at all, or even an ideological woman at all. It's a personification of a city. And not just any particular city. It can't just be applied across the board to any city, but this is about one city in particular, which is called the Holy City of God, or in the Old Testament context, it's about the city of Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem, in the midst of the Old Testament. And so in its scriptural context, this is a psalm of comfort to people living in ancient Jerusalem. And so when we look at it in its direct context, that changes the way that we understand it. But there's another problem. Because if you're in the book of Psalms and you flip to the right a little bit, you find some of the prophets painting a very different picture of Jerusalem. You see Ezekiel painting a picture of the Spirit of God leaving the temple. You see men like Ezra and Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem in rubble because it had been taken over by outside invaders and Jerusalem, in fact, fell. So now how do we process it? If it's not just a little nugget of scripture to be taken and applied to individual people for some good life lessons and a little self-help, if in its direct context it doesn't seem to, to fit into what happened to the city of Jerusalem, how do we understand this passage of Scripture? Hundreds of years later, John would help. The Apostle John, writing on the island of Patmos, and we're going to come back to John in a little bit, painted a picture of a new city, a holy city coming down from heaven to earth, and he calls the city the city of New Jerusalem. 
And John tells us that when Christ comes to make all things right and all things new, that Jesus is bringing with him his city to ours, that he's bringing heaven to earth and making everything right and everything new and creating a new heaven and a new earth. And in that will be this new city of Jerusalem, which represents that God's presence is with his people once and for all. Isaiah, when talking about this same imagery as a prophet hundreds of years earlier, talked about how this would be a place where God's presence would be with his people and this would be an eternal thing. And so when we look at Psalm chapter 46, verse 5, not simply in its applicational context, not simply in its biblical context, but in the context of the whole story of Scripture, we see that the writer of Psalms is pointing us towards a better Jerusalem that has no end and will never fail because God will be with his people and he will be their God and they will be his people and nothing will ever stand against that. And what could be more beautiful than that? When we approach Scripture, if we aren't careful, we can find a nugget of self-help or a rally cry for people long ago when God is pointing us to our ultimate hope of eternal life in Christ. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at these big themes throughout specifically the Old Testament. And we're going to see how these themes and motifs flow all the way through the Old Testament and then into the New and help lead us to see God's big plan and what God's doing. But also, it'll help us to understand how we approach, especially these Old Testament passages that can seem so foreign and unfamiliar, and to not yank them out of their context, but to see what they meant to their original audience, but also how they contributed to God's big story leading us to Christ, who is leading us to the day when he comes again to make everything right and everything new. And so this is going to be a very different series for us. Ordinarily, we would just be in one small passage of Scripture for several weeks, or we would look at one book over about half a year. But now we are going to cover a very broad range of Scripture, from Genesis to Malachi, 39 books, and all the themes and motifs inside of there in about 10 weeks. And so we're going to look at this from a very different point of view, but I think it's important to zoom out and see the big story so we can understand how all of these parts and pieces and stories and scriptures inside of the Bible help lead us to God's ultimate purpose of revealing himself to us and bringing about salvation to his people that is a once and for all forever sort of thing. And so this morning, we're going to use as our, our root text today, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And it says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. May God add His blessing and His favor to the reading of His Word. Thanks be to God for His Word. Father, we thank You and we praise You for Your creativity and Your beauty and what You've given us inside of Scripture. As we look at your word as a whole, God, help us to not get lost in the size and the scope, but, Father, to see how amazing you are as you hold it all in your hand and point it in the exact right direction. Help us to see how big and wonderful and creative you are, but, God, also help us to see how much you love us, that the entire story of human history is sculpted around salvation and redemption of your people. God, help us to learn how to read your story in light of the big story. And then help us to live 
as people who believe that we are a part of that story that you're writing. And to go out and to do what you've called us to do, loving you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves, and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ in word and in action everywhere we go. Until the day when we see your story in its fullness as Jesus comes to make all things right and all things new. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If we're going to talk about Scripture having this one big story, this one big narrative, I think it's important that we understand why we can make that interpretation, why we can make that statement. And so the first question we have to ask ourselves if we're going to make this assertion is, how do we know? How do we know that Scripture really is telling this one big story? I think it helps us to begin with the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. So John, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the leaders in the church after the death and resurrection of Christ, one of of the, the founders of our faith, was on exile on this island for his faith. And as he was on the island of Patmos, God gave him a vision. God pulled back the curtain a little bit. God gave him a revelation about who Jesus is now as King of kings and Lord of lords and how one day Jesus is going to come and make everything right and everything new. And John wrote this vision down as a letter to seven churches. And when we sit down with the revelation, with what John has there, a book that can be very intimidating if we're honest, what we see is that John is very aware of the story. Because as John is writing about who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do as he finishes up God's plan, as he finishes up God's story, we see that all through this letter that John was writing to these churches, everything inside of it in the code that he wrote in is saturated with and just dripping with imagery and stories and allusions from the Old Testament. In fact, it is very difficult to understand the book of Revelation without having a foundation in the Old Testament and to see what John is making reference to and to understand all the things that John is talking about, even down to the numbers and the symbols and the signs and all the things that happen in the book of Revelation that cause us so much confusion, all of those things to his first century audience would have been fairly clear Because most of these early Christians would have been converts from Judaism who would have been founded in and rooted in these Old Testament stories, these Old Testament truths, and this Old Testament theology. As John is writing this letter, he is very aware that he is writing out the end of the story that God began so many years ago. I think the answer to our question, how do we know that the Bible is telling us one big story, is that we can know this is true because the Bible knows that this is true. There is a certain self-awareness all throughout Scripture that we see happening over and over again that Scripture is telling this one big, important, and awesome story. And Genesis, in case we needed something a little more obvious, the book of Genesis begins in a very story fashion by saying, in the beginning... I love how N.T. Wright talks about this because he says that that God's story, that biblical authority begins with the phrase once upon a time. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so we see from the very beginning of our Bible that God has a purpose and a plan, that there is a start and that there will be a finish, that this story has a beginning. 
And almost immediately after that, inside the book of Genesis and beyond, we start seeing Scripture telling us genealogies. Things that we could easily just skip over because it's a list of names and it feels very boring when you approach it because it's this guy begot this guy begot this guy and we don't know any of these people and these names can be confusing and they're long and they're strange and they seem foreign, but they're important. Because the genealogies teach us that the people that were writing them understood that there was a connection from generation to generation. That each of these stories were linked together for a purpose and for a reason and for a cause. And so the fact that they would fill the pages of Scripture with a bunch of names shows us that they were self-aware of what was going on. All throughout the Bible, there are summaries of what's taken place. As God's people would drift from the truth, God would remind them, listen, I am your God. But I'm not just your God. I'm the God of your father, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Don't you remember when I did this for your family members? Don't you remember when I did this for your ancestors? Don't you remember that I've been working all of this from start to finish? Don't you remember the big story? Generations in the Old Testament found themselves as a part of that story. We see that in the exile towards the end of the Old Testament when God's people were taken out of their city when they were taken out of their homeland and taken captive into other countries and other places and spread abroad, they echoed and resonated with the stories from the people in Exodus. They found themselves as a part of that story as the people wandered in the wilderness. They connected to that story because they realized that it wasn't just the story for people hundreds of years earlier, that they were now living out this story as well. From early on, The scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, were aware that these stories, that these people, that these events were connected. That they were telling one big story and the story was building to something. In fact, the story was building to someone. Throughout the Old Testament, with all of its themes and all of its motifs, the Old Testament seems very aware that it is laying a foundation for something better to come. It's pushing us in a direction. Even from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, God gives this declaration that I have a plan that is bigger than the curse. I have a plan that's bigger than the fall. Keep moving in this direction. Keep following after me. Even the prophets were constantly saying, things aren't good right now, but God has a plan and God has a purpose. We need to keep following His story. scholar of scripture, David Steinmetz, talking about this and the the self-awareness of the Old Testament, was talking about if it was possible for the Old Testament saints, for the Old Testament writers to understand in full detail what was going on. And so he says, of course, they didn't understand the finer details of Christian theology. Of course, they didn't understand all the things that were taking place. He says, such explicit knowledge would have been impossible for them at the time. But I do not believe that I, that Isaiah had an explicit knowledge of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to believe that he was a part of a bigger narrative that finds its final, though not sole, meaning in Christ. As Isaiah was writing these, these beautiful pictures of what the Messiah was going to do and how the Messiah was going to save us, of course he didn't know all of the particulars and maybe he didn't see the face of Jesus, but he knew that he was laying the groundwork for something better to come. That he was pointing people towards someone better. Jesus understood this. 
when the religious leaders came to Jesus and were questioning him and they tried to, to show their credit by who they were, they said, listen, we are, we're children of Abraham. And Jesus said, no, you're not. Because if you were, then you would know who I am. He says, you want to know why you would know who I am? Because Abraham knew who I was going to be. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced in it. Matthew, as he's writing his gospel and telling the story about Jesus over and over again, Matthew writing to a predominantly Jewish audience was saying, listen, this verse of scripture was about Jesus. When the, when the Old Testament says that out of Egypt I called my son, that's about Jesus. Watch how he's fulfilling all these things. Watch how these stories, watch how all of these prophecies point to Jesus. It's all about him. The writer of Hebrews made those same claims. Saying, you know, all of those people, all of those heroes of our faith, people like Melchizedek and Abraham and Moses, all of these names that you grew up learning, they were all pointing to Jesus. Because Jesus is the better Melchizedek. Jesus is the better Abraham. Jesus is the better Moses. They were all an imperfect picture of what one day Jesus was going to be. Their stories were designed to point us towards his. I love Hebrews chapter 11 as it tells us of all of the saints of the Old Testament and their faith and their passion to serve God and love God. But one of the most amazing things about Hebrews chapter 11 is towards the end, the writer of Hebrews tells us that all of these people lived and died, but they didn't receive the promise. They were living in faith, trusting in God, pursuing after something, but they all died before Christ came. They didn't get to see the full revelation of what God was doing, but they also knew that their lives and their deaths were part of the fulfillment of God's big story, that they were laying the foundation. And the writer of Hebrews calls them now this great cloud of witnesses that surround us, that through their stories, they point us towards Christ. We see very clearly that every page and every person and every theme and every motif of every book and every passage guides the reader of Scripture one step further into God's big story. But we can also know that there's one big story because it is, in fact, God's big story. Again, we've already talked about how there were over 40 different writers that contributed to the completion of Scripture. But there was only one author. And that's where Paul comes in here in the book of Timothy. And talking to Timothy, he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Or some translations say this, that all scripture is God breathed. And scholars believe that this was a term that Paul coined to describe something unique and amazing, that God breathed out scripture into the hearts of the people who were writing it. And he said that it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Earlier, he says that it contains in it all that's needed for salvation. He continues in verse 17, saying that the person of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. And it's important to know what scripture Paul was talking about. Because clearly, Paul didn't have the whole thing in front of him because he was writing part of it. And so Paul was predominantly talking about the Old Testament scriptures as he makes this claim that all scripture is breathed out by God. And so we see while God used so many people to contribute to it, this is all one story because it is God's story. 
And that every word of the Bible is warmed and given life by the same breath that called the stars into their place and set the universe into motion. And because there is one God, because there's one author, because there's one word made flesh in Christ and one Holy Spirit that breathes life into his word, we must look at God's story as one unified story. So that's the case for it. But what is it? What is the one unified story? Well, as we've already seen, it starts where all good stories do. In the beginning. And in the beginning, there was God. And as we're going to see next week, God is a creator. And God begins to create, and he creates a world, and it is very good. But we know just a few chapters in, just a couple page turns later, something happens. And sin enters the world. And all of a sudden, God's creation that was good and holy and wonderful was now blemished. In fact, the word that we see in Scripture is the word, it was cursed. And it was broken. But this didn't take God by surprise. I think the best way to understand the big story is to look at it from the perspective of the trees. In Genesis chapter 2, God is creating a garden. We'll say the garden's over here. And God plants in the middle of a garden a tree. And he calls that tree the tree of life. And from that tree, God sends out a river. And that river breaks up into four rivers. And they begin flowing where they're going to flow. If we fast forward to the other side of the Bible. In Revelation chapter 22. As John is painting this picture of this new city, of this new Jerusalem, he says there's this beautiful city that God is putting in place. And in the middle of that city, there's a garden. And running through that garden is a river. And at the front of that river is a tree. And it's a tree that John calls the tree of life. He says the leaves of that tree are for the healing of the nations. And so we have this bookend of the tree of life at the beginning and at the end. And so we see this common theme and this common narrative of God is doing something. That should catch our attention. And there's this river that flows in between it. And so we can have an understanding that this river flowing from one tree to the other is telling God's story. But in the dead center of the story, there's another tree. A very different kind of tree. Because in the center of the story, as Paul said, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. And Jesus, as we know, was born to die. And in the middle of God's story, we see another tree raised from the ground. Except this one is in the shape of a cross. And as Jesus is hanging on the cross, we see another river there. But not a river of life, but one of death. As Jesus is bleeding to the point where as he's bleeding and they pierce his side, water flows out because he's basically out of blood. And as we look at those trees, we find out exactly what God is doing. That it started with life. But sin entered in and brought in death. And as that river continued flowing, we see all through the Old Testament, death after death after death, and the sacrifices coming in to remind us of everything that we owe God, that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and death is the only answer to that. And so in order to stop the flow of death, God planted another tree. And that tree in the middle of God's story that was a tree of death for Jesus became the tree of life for us. And that anyone who believes in Christ Anyone who 
trust in Jesus' work on that tree is a new creation. And we see that river personified in what we call baptism, where we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised again into new life. And we stay in that river from that point on, heading towards the day when Jesus comes to make everything right and everything new. And we'll be with Christ forever. So the summary of God's story is this. That God made a good world. Sin contaminated it and brought in death. But that God is building something new, something better, through Jesus. That through Jesus, God is defeating death. Through Jesus, God is bringing about new creation. Through Jesus, God is taking us back to the tree of life. The story of Scripture teaches us that God is taking us from Eden to a better Eden. He's taking us and turning us from enemies into family, from strangers into heirs, and he's doing it all the way that he planned before a glimmer of light ever peaked over the earth's horizon. That God knew the story before he wrote it down. That God had a plan before sin entered the world. But why does it matter? If we can say, okay, Scripture teaches us this one big story of God redeeming all of his people and God bringing about life out of death, why does this matter for us? I think it matters for several reasons. First, I think that it helps us see the beauty of God. It helps us understand that God is not only creator, but that God is sovereign, that God is in control, and that God is amazing. That God is different than we are. Because we see the world very linearly, but God sees time and space and history all in the palm of his hand. We see the majesty and the scope and the size and the amazing nature of God as we look at his big story. We see that God cares about us and that God loves us. We see that God is doing all things for his glory and for our good. And so it matters first and foremost because it's a cause for us to worship. But also it matters because it helps us to trust God. As we look at the big story, we see that God is a God of promise. And that God never breaks his promises, but that he is faithful to do what he said he will do and he'll finish what he started. That's how Paul was able to say that I am confident that if you have trusted in Christ, that he who began that good work and you will complete it because God who said in the beginning and is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he is going to finish what he started. It helps us to realize that God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. That nothing is spinning out of control and that randomness is held in the palm of his hand and that he is never taken by surprise or never taken off guard. We're shown that God is a sovereign storytelling God who holds all things together by the same word that breathed out the scriptures. And we also know how the story ends. There's no big surprise. There's no big twist at the end. We know that if we are in Christ, that our plan, that our purpose, that the end of our story is that one day Jesus will come and he's going to fix the things that break our hearts. That he's going to put the pieces back together the way that they're supposed to be. That he's going to take what was once good and take it from being bad to making it perfect and holy and awesome and wonderful. And that if we have trusted in Christ for salvation, that we will be in that wonderful story ending for all of eternity with Christ as his children, as his people in his city. And nothing will take that away. The understanding of the story also helps us to read the Bible well. 
to be able to look at any passage of Scripture and understand how it fits in to the big story. That the purpose of everything is to point us to Christ, to point us to God's plan to save us through Jesus, to point us to the good news of who Jesus is. Everything in the Old Testament is designed to point our eyes towards Jesus, saying things are broken, but Jesus is better. That things aren't perfect, but one who is perfect is coming. And then everything inside the New Testament is designed to point us at the same time back towards Christ and his work on the cross and in the empty tomb. And also point us towards the end of Revelation when Jesus comes to make everything right and everything new. We find that Scripture isn't a series of disjointed rules or fables or names or stories, but is one unified message of God's love for His people. And so it gives us confidence to dive into the story. It gives us confidence to be able to look not only at what God says in the New Testament, to be able to have the, the courage sometimes to jump into the Old Testament and explore God's story and see what God has done and find in that the foundation to trust what God will do. It also helps us to find our place. Robert Jensen says this, that not only is Scripture within the church, but we, the church, are within Scripture. That is, our common life is located inside the story that Scripture tells. God's story is still being told. And just like the people of the Old Testament, just like the people of the New Testament, each and every one of us is an important part of that story. And so as we see God's big story, we can find our identity in God's story. We can be reminded that we aren't alone, that we are a part of this big cloud of witnesses that the writer of Hebrews talks about, but also we have purpose and we have meaning and we have value because the author of all creation chose to write a chapter about us as well. And so we find our place in the midst of that story. It's the cure for, for loneliness and purposelessness because we are reminded that a God of order and purpose designed us and created us for a reason. But then most importantly, this big story of Scripture is meant to lead us to Christ. John calls Jesus the Word made flesh. The writer of Hebrews says that that word, that Jesus has the ability to cut us down to the word joint and marrow meat. In Revelation, we see Jesus as the beginning and the end. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. And there is nothing outside of me because I am the immovable movable. I am the uncreated creator. And I am going to wrap all things up in myself. And so as we look at these themes and motifs, as we see next week, the, the theme of creation through the Old Testament. We're reminded of the words of Paul that said that through Jesus, all things were created. They were created through him and by him and for him. That John says that he was there in the beginning. As we look at the theme of calling through the Old Testament, we are reminded that Jesus is the one that calls us and gives us a new identity. That he takes sinners and makes them saints. That he takes children of wrath and makes them children, sons and daughters of God. As we look at the theme of death inside of Scripture, inside of the Old Testament, we're reminded that Christ is the ultimate sacrifice who is willing to lay down His life for our own and that one day we will have victory over death through Christ because of the work of His resurrection. Every page echoes with the whispers of Jesus. 
So as we look at the big story of Scripture, our eyes and our ears and our hearts should be tuned directly to Him. And so for the next couple months, we're going to be looking at these unifying themes and motifs of the Old Testament. Things that remind us that this is one story pointing us to one hope because we have one Savior. And so I've already said this will be a very different kind of series. Not just in the the way that we go about approaching these passages of Scripture, looking at them big and thematically instead of in detail like we normally do. But also what we take away from these sermons will be somewhat different. Because there's certainly going to be truths that we can practically apply to our lives, but that isn't the ultimate point of what we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. The point is that we will have a new lens through which we can see the big story of Scripture. And to be able to have a foundational knowledge of the big themes of the Old Testament that are designed to point us directly to Jesus. And it's my hope that by the end of this series, each of us will be able to recognize the whispers of Jesus through every page of Scripture and be more fully aware of who He is as He screams off the pages of the new. So I hope you'll be here week after week as we go through these passages of Scripture. I hope you fall in love with the story and with the Old Testament and the beauty of what God has done and then also are filled with the hope of the beauty of what God is still doing.